Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Go ahead and turn to Luke 15 in your Bibles, navigate there on your smartphones, and we will, yeah, we'll read through verses 1 through 10 in just a moment. Luke 15 is one of the more familiar chapters in the whole Bible. Um, and so it's, it's the home of one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the story of the prodigal son. Uh, we're going to cover that next week. What we're going to see over the course of this week and next week is that um, all of the stories in Luke 15, the story of the lost sheep and the story of the lost coin that we're going to cover today, and the story of the prodigal son are all kind of in response to the same uh, the same thing. They're, they're all kind of aimed at the same thing. Jesus is, uh, you know, receives criticism from uh, the religious leaders because... Uh, he is receiving sinners and eating with them. He's spending time with people that the religious leaders uh, do not consider worthy of spending time with. And so that, that kind of criticism from the religious leaders evokes a response from Jesus uh, that comes in the form of three uh, parables, right? He tells them that, um, you know, he tells them that, the, that, that, to, that, that Jesus came ultimately to save sinners. Jesus came to spend time with sinners so that he could save them. Now, the difference between, the reason why we're covering just two and not all three of them is because uh, the story of the prodigal son, as we'll see next week, kind of gets a little bit more into the weeds, right? These first two have a lot of similarities and they, they focus a lot on the heart of God, God's heart for sinners, the joy and delight that God has when sinners repent and turn to him. Uh, whereas the story of the prodigal son gets a lot more into the, the nitty-gritty of our response to the heart of God to save sinners, right? And it kind of contrasts maybe a, a humble, repentant, trusting response versus a, a prideful, self-righteous, kind of religious response and things like that. And so we're going to cover the lost sheep and the lost coin today. We're going to cover the prodigal uh, son next week. But like I said, lost sheep and lost coin are, you know, some sermons um, deal a lot with the indicative, right? They kind of tell you, they indicate, they tell you things that are true about God. Some uh, passages in Scripture deal a lot more with the imperative, what you are supposed to do, how you're called to respond. And to one degree or another, every passage in the whole Bible has some form of indicative, uh, who God is, what he has done for us in Christ, and some form of imperative, how we are to respond, what we are to do. But different passages are going to kind of have different uh, nuances and different uh, stresses and different kind of emphases. And so uh, th- these two passages are, are just very heavy on the indicative, who God is, what he has done for us, the character of God, the heart of God, the love of God, the fact that God cares about us, the fact that God prioritizes a relationship with us more than anything, and, and just the utter joy and delight and, and almost ecstasy that, that God feels uh, when he, when his people uh, come to him. So a passage like this is really just an opportunity for us as God's people to just take a few minutes and kind of behold and, and stare at and, and sit in and, and bask in and, and enjoy the, the glory of God, the grace of God, all that that means for us. It's an opportunity to let that nourish our, our souls and, and, and encourage us. And so, so yeah, my, my hope is that this passage, this sermon this morning is one where we can, you know, show up hungry and leave full because we have just enjoyed and kind of taken in, partaken of the love of God and just the, the free grace of God. So that's kind of where we're, where we're headed. I'm going to read through the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 15, and then we will, we'll get to work. It reads, Now, 
The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine and go to the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And he comes home, and he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her neighbors and her friends and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask for you to come here and bless this time as we look at your word together. We ask you to help us to see and behold the heart of God for sinners. We ask that you would encourage us and strengthen us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, starting in verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. This, is, this setup is important because it's going to inform both where this sermon goes, where these 10 verses go, and where the latter half of this chapter goes, the story of the prodigal son, right? We've got all, you know, tax collectors, sinners flocking to Jesus, drawing near to him, sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching. They feel like they, like they have an advocate in Jesus. They feel like they have a friend, someone who will listen to them, someone who will care for them, someone who will hear their problems and not be scandalized and not, not you know, ostracize them because of, of them, right? Someone who will, who will not just judge them based on what they see on the outside, but will actually care for them in their, their heart. In verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes, the other kind of half, the other you know, uh, portion of the cast, as it were, uh, they look on and they grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. These are the same guys that Jesus was, react, was, was uh, interacting with in Luke chapter 14, right? The guys that Jesus confronted and rebuked for being selfish and having ulterior motives and jockeying for position and trying to, uh, you know, get the, the honorable uh, seats, uh, you know, and, and th- these are the same guys that Jesus in Luke 14 said that, uh, that they were going to be excluded from the kingdom of God uh, in favor of uh, tax collectors and sinners and Gentiles that are going to be ushered into the kingdom of God. So we kind of have these two, you know, kind of uh, two segments that are, are mutually exclusive, right? And they, they one uh, hates and judges the other, and the other feels judged by and feels condemned by, by the other. That's kind of the cast of characters in uh, this chapter. And here's how Jesus responds. What man of you Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. You've got a shepherd, 
Probably a middle-class shepherd, um, you know, not particularly poor, not particularly wealthy, spends all day watching his sheep, keeping an eye on the perimeter of his sheep, making sure that none wander off, making sure that no predators come in and attack, right? The last thing he would usually do at night before he, you know, kind of goes to bed is count all of his sheep and make sure that they are all there. And if one is missing, it triggers a big search because this is a, a big deal. If he, if he had, this one doesn't appear to, but if he does have employees or apprentices, then he would, you know, send them out to go look or he would have them stay with the, with the flock here and watch the 99 while a search party goes out and looks for them. And they would look all night long. They would look until they either found the sheep or found, you know, definitive evidence that the sheep had been eaten or, or killed. It's kind of, you know, like a no soldier left behind kind of thing, right? So, so uh, this guy, again, doesn't seem to have employees, so he is the one who kind of executes the search himself. He, he realizes when he counts in as 99 instead of 100, he's got a choice. I can, I can uh, cut my losses, stay here with the 99, and just hope that the sheep wanders back uh, to his, his buddies, or I can leave the 99 here, unattended, and I can go look for the one sheep to save it. Which sounds a little odd initially, because it just seems, it sounds like he's maybe not weighing the risk and the reward as, as much as he, as he could, right? He, he you know, the, the, the cost, uh, at most, if you stay with your 99 sheep, at most the cost that you have is one sheep. Right, the the one sheep that's wandered off is is gone forever. So you lose one. That's the if you stay home, that's the maximum. Uh, you know, that's the maximum downside. Whereas the upside, well, is that maybe the sheep comes back, maybe he doesn't. If you go look for the one sheep in the wilderness, then it's very it's very likely. So a, it's likely that the one sheep is already dead anyway. Maybe that's why he's not there is that he got eaten. So you might be wandering around in search of a sheep that's not even alive anymore. Two, you might go either find that he's already dead or find him alive and bring him back only to find that the 99 that you left had gotten ravaged, right? That, that a predator had come in and kind of picked off as many of them as they could because they were unattended. Or maybe they wander off while you're not there to keep them from doing so. So it seems like a bad it seems like he didn't game it out properly. It seems like he didn't uh, properly think through the risk and the reward, the cost and the, the, the benefit, right? An upside of one sheep versus a downside of 99 sheep, right? If, you, if you're like, if you have a briefcase full of money and you're going to deposit it into the bank and you realize you left some change on the floorboards of your car, you're not gonna like leave the briefcase full of money sitting on the sidewalk while you walk back to your car to get a handful of nickels because people are going to take all the money that you, that you left out. And so, so it, it, we, understand, like we hear the story and we can kind of understand that this seems like, a, a, this seems like maybe not the wisest choice. Not, you're not thinking it through. You're kind of leaving yourself open to a greater loss than if you just kind of stay with the 99. And Jesus, Jesus' hearers understood that too. They could... They could do the math. They could understand how uh, this worked. They, they understood the logic of hedging your bets and, and capping your losses uh, as opposed to gambling and trying to find the one sheep. And yet every single, the reason he tells the story is because every single one of them, without fail, 
would go and look for the lost sheep. And that's kind of his, his point. He's saying that there is a space in your life when you would abandon logic and you would abandon you know, what is the most strategic simply because this one sheep is important to you. The 99 sheep are important, but this one sheep is incredibly important to you, important enough for you to, to go search after it, right? If, you know, if a, if a first grade teacher takes her class on a field trip and they get on the bus at the end of the day and there's 29 out of 30 kids on the bus, you know, she wouldn't say, well, that's still a pretty good, still a pretty good batting average. 29 out of 30 is not bad. She would like stop what she's doing and, you know, drop everything and go find this one kid because, because the child, this kid is really important. This kid is of supreme importance. So it has nothing to do with logic. It has nothing to do with ratios. It has nothing to do, right? You just, you stop what you're doing and you find the missing kid because the missing kid matters. And Jesus is saying that's kind of what a shepherd would do with his sheep that he cares about and he's invested in and he has, you know, raised from, from a little lamb and he has kind of nurtured it into this like you know animal that he both loves and cares for but also is financially invested in and wants to get a return from the sheep matters to him right there are times when we'll abandon what's logical and what makes the most sense just because we love something just because we love someone just because that thing is important to us and then verse five uh by god's grace uh, it, it, it works out, right? When he has found the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders and he's rejoicing, he's happy, he's glad that he found the sheep and he comes back, right? And, and this, this joy is not just private, like kind of elation in his, in his heart, but verse 6, he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, rejoice with me, I found my sheep that was lost. His joy is so intense, his joy is so uncontainable that, that he's inviting people over to come and celebrate with him anyone ever and come celebrate with me because I have found my this is the best day of my life I found the sheep that I love and that I want and that I care for it's back safe and sound come celebrate with me and Jesus says that is the heart of God for sinners just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need repentance. Right? right? The same joy, the same, you know, just welling up inside of his heart, uncontainable, spilling out onto anyone and everyone that's around him that the shepherd feels for his sheep is what God feels for his people. He loves them. He, he cherishes them. He, he values them. They are important to him. When, when sinners repent, when they are reconciled to God, God loves it and it brings him joy and he, he celebrates and he rejoices and he invites people that are around him to rejoice with him. God loves sinners and God loves when sinners repent. And Jesus then follows it up with another parable, same story, same moral, different uh, parable. What woman having 10 silver coins does not light a lamp or sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? There's a woman, 10 coins, likely uh, drachma coins, which is one coin is equal to one day's, uh, you know, pay, uh, uh, you know, one day's pay for, for a, a laborer. So, you know, if you get, if you get paid every two weeks, then this would be about the equivalent of a paycheck, All right? Whatever your paycheck is, is about what 10 drachma coins was more or less uh, equivalent to. Now, it's not, cl- it's not clear whether this 
um, these ten coins uh, amount to the entirety of what this woman has, of, of her, you know, kind of all of her possessions. And so that would kind of inform whether this is a poor woman or maybe a wealthier uh, woman. It might very well be that this is all she had. These ten coins is all she has, in which case, you know, she is, you know, kind of flirting with the poverty line a little bit. She has a little bit of money, but not much. You could imagine if all that you, ha- like, you can imagine what you make on a given two-week pay period, and if that was all you had to your name, you know, money in your wallet, checking accounts, savings, investments, retirement, house, car, all of your possessions just amounted to what you get on one paycheck. That's, that's again, you're kind of flirting with the, the poverty line there. And so if this represents all of her possessions, then this is a poor woman. Of course, this might not be the entirety of her, her possessions, right? Um, the, uh, it's, it's, it was not uncommon uh, in this day for, for women to kind of make an ornamental necklace or even like a headdress out of coins like this. And then that necklace, that headdress would actually, she would keep it as her dowry that she would kind of give to her husband and kind of bring into the marriage. So it's what women would use to, um, to attract a, a spouse, to attract a husband who would in turn provide for her and protect her for the rest of her life. So it's kind of what she would use to bring into the, the marriage. And so if that's the case... Um, then, then she might not be poor because she might have a one piece of jewelry that is equivalent to you know, an entire paycheck that, that you might bring home in a given two-week period. But even if she's not poor, that's, this is still a really valuable prized possession of hers. This, this, uh, you know, this, this ornamental necklace that she has, it, it not only is it valuable in the sense that it is, you know, uh, yeah, has, has two weeks worth of pay, but it also is kind of her singular, uh, you know, key to finding a spouse that will protect her and provide for her. It's, it's her singular possession that she's going to use to attract a, a, a husband. So regardless of her socioeconomic status, whether she's wealthy or, or poor, the bottom line is that these 10 coins are important. They're either all she has and they're very important, or they're part of this dowry necklace thing and therefore are very important. So when one of them is lost, it's a big deal. It's, it's kind of a four alarm. This is an urgent matter. She's not ambivalent to it. She doesn't not care. She literally stops what she's doing, drops everything, and just searches her whole house. Flashlights, spotlights, let me see everything that I can see in this house. Let me sweetly declutter everything, move everything all around, sweep, vacuum. Let me, let me look every corner, every square inch of this house so that I can try to find this coin. Verse 9, and when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and she says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just like the shepherd who found his sheep, she calls everyone that she knows. Friends, neighbors, anyone, indiscriminate, come over, come to a party, I'm terribly excited, right? I found this precious, invaluable coin, and I want you to share in my happiness. And just like the shepherd, there's kind of some strange, uh, you know, difficult to understand, like why would he leave the 99 to go in search of the one? Doesn't that a, isn't that a bad cost-benefit analysis? There's some similar themes here, right? She's spending all day searching and sweeping and looking for this one coin and then throwing a big party and inviting all these people over. In all likelihood, she's spending more time and money looking for the coin than the coin is worth. Right? She, she's probably spending more than one drachma coin to, on this party that she's inviting all of her neighbors to. 
This is, and, and one scholar actually says, that's exactly the point. From an economic point of view, this woman's response is folly. Right? Look back at the shepherd. His response is somewhat foolish. And from, this, from an economic perspective, this woman's response is folly. But the parable is not about economics. It's about God's grace which we can see in verse 10, right? Uh, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The scholar continues, this parable is not about economics, it's about God's grace, perhaps even the folly of God's grace. The the God's grace that, that seeks the lost until they are found, and then once they are found, he celebrates their recovery in abandon, reckless abandon, right? The joy of God has no price tag. That's what Jesus is trying to get across in these two parables. The reckless, almost foolish, prodigal, just grace of God, the love of God for sinners, that he is willing to spend anything and everything to go and get them back. And when he gets them, he loves them, he celebrates them, he cherishes the fact that they are there with him because he values them and he is infinitely invested in them. God would pursue those that he loves to a degree that borders on absurd, right? To get them back safe and sound. And then once he does, he celebrates, again, to a a degree that is absurd, beyond what is economically feasible, beyond what is practically strategic, right? Beyond what's convenient or beyond what is expedient. That's kind of how the grace of God operates. That's how God loves his people, how God loves you, right? Right? God loves you. God cares about you. God is invested in your well-being. If you are lost, if you wander away, God will stop at nothing to find you and to get you back. God loves his people. That is the, the big overarching truth that Jesus wants us to, to sit in and he wants us to behold in this text. Take whatever it is, whoever it is that you love more than anything in this world, whether it's stuff, money, possessions, your spouse, your kids, you name it. Think of who or what it is in this world that you love more than anything else, that you would sacrifice more than anything else. Now multiply that love, that affection, that emotion, that that you're feeling about that thing. Multiply it by a million. Multiply it by infinity. And now you're, 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 you're starting to, you're, you're just scratching the surface of how much God loves you. How much God cares about you. How much God is willing to sacrifice in order to bless you and to help you. That's the, the main theme that Jesus is trying to communicate here. That God loves his people. But it's not just that God loves his people, it's also that God then acts on that love for his people and he actually goes out and, and saves them. The shepherd doesn't just care about his sheep and then stay where he is, right? Staying awake all night, fretting, hoping that his sheep comes back because I love this sheep so much and I care about it now I'm so invested. He cares about it and he loves the sheep so much that he goes out and saves it. He puts his life at risk. He puts the lives of the other sheep at risk so that he can go save this one sheep. And then he finds it, saves it, and brings it home. The woman doesn't just care about this coin uh, and then do nothing. She cares about the coin enough to get up and to look for it. And she stops at nothing to get it back in her possession and have it. And that is what God has done with us. 
It's true that God loves us. It's true that God has an emotional response when he thinks about us. It's true that God values us and prizes us, and that should be of great encouragement to our souls. But it's also true that God has acted on his love for us and saved us. God doesn't just remain in heaven looking down on us with warmth and affection. He comes here. He, he, puts, he becomes a person and dwells among us. He immerses himself into our world. He's born as a little baby. He grows up as a child into a, into a man. He, he has a three-year ministry where he's preaching and teaching and healing and, and calling people back to himself. Ultimately, in Christ, God himself dies in the place of his people. So that if they trust in him, their sins are reckoned to his account and his righteousness is reckoned to their account. Right? Take everything this shepherd did to save his sheep and everything this woman did to find this coin. And Jesus has done infinitely more to save you from your sin, from your eternal separation from him and from the love of God. Two big overarching themes of this of these two parables is that God loves us and he has affection for us and he has an emotional response to us, but also that he acts on that love and he saves us and he actually saves us from our sin. And then the application is quite simple. Right? The, the application is simply to to live in view of those two overarching truths of these parables, right? right? To, to, to live in view where we actively and intentionally repent of our sin. Look at, take notice of the two concluding remarks at the end of both of these parables. And the, at the end of the shepherd, he says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. At the end of the, the parable of the lost coin, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's not just that God loves sinners, although he does. It's that God loves, God celebrates, God delights, God takes great joy in when sinners repent. He can't get enough of that. He actually, he, God loves when sinners repent more than he loves people who are righteous and holy and don't even need to repent in the first place, which is crazy, right? Which, 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 you know, God, God is more enthusiastic about a lawless, immoral, sinner who turns from his sin, then God is enthusiastic about a holy, righteous, moral, good person. 99 times more, right? He says, there, I'm, I'm, I am happier about one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. So, so we're talking, you know, I mean, multiple orders of magnitude here of how much more delight, how much more happiness, how much more joy God has for repentance as opposed to simply being righteous in the first place and not needing to repent. So knowing that, doesn't it stand to reason that our goal as Christians would be to do that which makes God the happiest? Do, do that which brings God the most joy, right? right? If, if given two choices, on the one hand I can repent of my sin, and on the other hand I can be righteous such that I have no sin to repent of, if given those two choices... 
Jesus is saying, uh, God would rather us repent of our sin, which for me is terribly convicting. Because if I, I imagine this is true of all of us, but I know that at least if I look at my life, I probably spend much more time and effort and resources trying to be, or at least trying to appear, righteous. And to make sure that I have nothing that I need to repent of. And to make sure that no one can tell me that I have anything that I need to repent of. Than I do actually confessing my sin to others. And turning from it. Jesus says God loves when people turn from their sin. He's not, he's not scandalized by the, the hit that their pride or their reputation takes when they turn from sin. Rather, he's blessed and he's overjoyed by the fact that they did turn from sin. He loves that more than when people are righteous and don't need to repent at all. Yet we tend to concentrate our efforts on being righteous so that we don't need to repent. We spend more time trying to make sure that we never have to apologize for anything than we spend simply apologizing when given the opportunity. We spend our time and our energy doing the the thing that God is not that invested in, and we neglect the one thing that makes God rejoice and makes God well up with happiness. And the reason why, the reason why Jesus can say with such confidence that he, that God, uh, is more, takes more delight, there's more joy in the heart of God when he sees a sinner repent than when he sees 99 people who are righteous and don't need to repent is because God knows our hearts. And he knows that there's no such thing as a righteous person who does not need repentance. That's not, that's, that's not a thing, that's, that doesn't exist in the wild. Like, there's no such thing as a righteous... Right? There, there are sinners who repent, and then there are other sinners who need to repent, but they delude themselves into thinking that they're righteous so that they don't have to repent. There's no such thing as righteous people who do not need to repent. There are sinners who need to repent, and then there are other sinners that need to repent, but they have convinced themselves that they do not. And Jesus is saying, this is what makes God, like, if, if you are blessed by the themes of, like, if, if when you hear that God loves you, when you hear that God comes after you, when you hear that God pursues you, when you hear that God saves you, if that makes you want to respond in kind, if that makes you think, wow, I love this God. I want to do something to, to make this God happy. He has done so much for me that I want to respond and do what he wants me to do. Jesus is saying, I'll tell you what that is. It's to, it's to confess your sin and to repent of it, right? God is effectively throwing a, a huge party when he sees his people dispense with the delusions that they're righteous and that they do not need to repent. And instead, he sees them acknowledge their sin and confess their sin and repent of their sin and trust in Jesus to save them from their sin. Knowing that if they do, it, it brings God joy. It brings him just profound happiness. This, this passage tells us who God is and what God loves, and what is in his heart, and it tells us what God has done for us, and then it, it invites us to, to sit in it, and to behold it, and to, to drink it in, and then it outlines exactly how we are to respond to the character of God. God is our loving Father, 
His love for us is extravagant. It's, it's bold. It's outrageous. Jesus is our Savior. He comes to us. He finds us. He picks us up. He puts us on his shoulders and carries us home. And God delights and rejoices when sinners repent. He throws a huge party and there is profound joy and gladness. And our response as Christians is to do just that. It's to acknowledge our sin, to confess our sin, to confess it to God, to confess it to one another, to turn from it, and then to run hard after God, trusting in Christ, holding fast to Him, knowing that He is our only hope. And that is what the sacrament of communion is all about. It's all about remembering who Jesus is, and confessing to him who we are, turning from our sin and enjoying the grace that he has achieved for us. God, God I am a, a sinner, uh, I, and I turn from my sin. I need your grace. I receive your grace. I thank you for dying for me on the cross. I thank you that your body was broken for me, that your blood was shed for me so that I can be forgiven of my sin. And then together we eat and drink and celebrate, and we remember. We remember that that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We have, for, for sanitary reasons, we have prepackaged communion elements. Uh, so just, you know, as we're singing the song of response, you can come up uh, and grab one. While we're singing together, just go ahead and, and celebrate communion together or at, at your seat, right? Uh, take a minute, pray to God. Thank him for saving you from your sins. Confess your sins to him. Enjoy the grace that he offers freely to you. And then right there at your seat, just take communion uh, by, by yourself. You can peel off the top. There's a little wafer. And then you can peel off the next layer. And then you can have access to the juice that is under, uh, underneath it. When you're done, just throw it away in one of the trash cans that has a liner in it. Um, if you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion. Instead, we would invite you to take Christ. We would invite you to trust in Jesus and to be saved from your sins so that you can be prepared to take communion for us when we celebrate it next time. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, it, it is hard to believe, Lord, that the, that the king of the universe uh, who lives and reigns in heaven um, would go so far as to care about broken sinners like us. It's hard to believe, Lord, that you uh, would care about us enough that you rejoice and delight when we repent and when we turn to you. That is, uh, that is news that is too good to be true. Lord, we thank you that you came after us to save us, that you found us and put us on your shoulders and carried us home. And we pray, Lord, that in response to those glorious realities that we could be a people who turn from our sin and trust in you so that you uh, will delight in us and in our repentance. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.